Before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that you've given us another day, that you've given us another opportunity to uh, be witnesses to others about your grace and about salvation, about the Lord Jesus Christ, to be witnesses in the angelic conflict. Father, we thank you that you've given us another opportunity to study your word and to learn more about you, that we may learn how to live for you and learn more about all that you have provided for us. Father, tonight we especially pray for Ulan and Uh, Kyrgyzstan, we pray for him, for the men in the church, for the families, for everyone there. Uh, I'm sure they're feeling very uh, frightened because of this uh, intimidation from the government. We pray that you would give them strength, uh, convictions of their faith, that they might not be fearful, that they might be able to trust you. And even if it means that they are arrested, beaten some more, we pray that they might be a steadfast witness and that they might be able to respond to this torture and to this injustice with a love for their enemies that can only come from God the Holy Spirit as part of the fruit production uh, from walking by the Spirit. Father, we pray for us as a congregation that you'd give us direction as we look at a new facility, look at finding a better place to meet. We pray that you would guide and direct us there. We know that you will continue to provide for all of our needs. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to concentrate and focus this evening, that as God the Holy Spirit teaches us, we would be uh, responsive to his challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. We're not moving very quickly, but we're sinking the post holes very deep. And the reason is, is that these first four verses in Hebrews are just jam-packed with, with goodies. Uh, every clause has, says something about what's coming up in Hebrews. If we lay the foundation well in understanding and unpacking these first four verses, then when we hit verse 5, everything's going to make a lot more sense. Because once we hit verse 5, like a machine gun, the author quotes one Old Testament passage after another. Now, if you're going to do Hebrews right... It will take years because you'd have to take every Old Testament reference from every psalm. You'd have to go back to the original psalm and it's a, and it's that, the verse in its original context and exegete that whole psalm to make sure you, you understand that particular verse. At least I have to do that. I'm not going to take the time to go through each and every one of these uh, Old Testament passages in that detail. It, there's over uh, 80 references to the Old Testament in Hebrews, and we're just not going to spend the rest of our uh, lives studying Hebrews. We can get the gist of most of this, but we have to nail some of this down at the very beginning. We've gone through these initial verses, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, after God spoke in a variety of fragments, emphasizing the progressive nature of revelation in the Old Testament. 
Uh, Adam had some, Noah had some. This was written down, passed along to Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Each had different segments, fragments of Revelation. Moses, Joshua, Samuel, all the way down the line. David, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Every one of them have different fragments. And even when you put the whole of the Old Testament together, it still wasn't a sufficient revelation. It was still fragmentary because the Lord had not come yet, salvation had not been provided, the Messiah had not fulfilled all of the messianic prophecies, and so then we have the New Testament. So God, after God spoke in a variety of fragments and in various forms in time past to the fathers, that is the uh, generations past in Israel, by means of the prophets, even Abraham is called a prophet in Genesis. You have Abraham, Moses, you have Samuel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all the way down the line. After God spoke in a variety of fragments and in various forms in time past to the fathers by means of the prophets, he has in these last days spoken to us by Son. Now, his shouldn't be in there. It's not in the original. It is an anarthrous noun indicating the quality. Emphasis in, throughout Hebrews is on the superiority of the Son. Unfortunately, too many people think that's the message of Hebrews. It's not. It is the foundation of the message that the revelation of the Son surpasses everything in the Old Testament. And this is about as far as we have gotten. I want to back up a little bit before we get into the uh, airship issue, the inheritance issue. Go back to this passage, uh, this phrase, in these last days. This is a phrase that generates a certain amount of confusion. It also generates a certain amount of, uh, shall we say, Hollywood-type speculation. We've got this new mini-series on television. They keep using the phrase end of days, which I haven't found. Maybe it's used in some obscure translation somewhere, but I haven't found it. It's the last days. Now, what are the last days? Now, I briefly hit this when we went through, and I said that the phrase last days is frequently used in the New Testament to refer to the entire church age period. But I went back to do some work on it, and I ran across a great article that my friend Tommy Ice wrote on this. And I called Tommy up today. I said, hey, you did a great job on the, on the doctrine of the last days. I said, I think I'm just going to steal that from you. He said, well, go ahead. I've stolen a lot from you. And uh, we, then we got to thinking about all the things we steal from each other. And we were, uh, he said, you know, there was a, something you did back in seminary on covenants. He said, Charlie and I have been stealing from that for years. So we've just spent so much time over the years talking to each other and reading and writing uh, different things that we've done. We don't know who did what anymore. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ is that you just uh, encourage each other. You learn from one another. Nobody has a, has a corner on the truth or a corner on doctrine. And there's always men who have different specialties in different areas where they are really taught by the Holy Spirit and really hone in, and we have to uh, be thankful for them and benefit from them. So Tommy did a great analysis, and I want to use a chart that he put together in just a minute to help understand this issue on the, the last days. Let's cover about eight brief points. First of all, in rabbinical thought, 
there was the present age and the future age. The present age is now, the future age is the messianic age. So we just think in terms of how the Jews thought. They thought at the time of Christ about the now and then the future. Present age and then the future messianic age or the age of the kingdom, what we call the millennial age, the expectation of the Messiah. Second point, there are a number of different biblical expressions that refer to the end times. So we have this chart, last day's terminology. Incidentally, I, this chart's out there. It should be posted on the website soon, if not by tomorrow. Last day's terminology. You have last day's terminology that relates to Israel, last day's terminology that relates to the church. And you have to make that distinction. In the passage, the context always makes it clear. So we'll just run through these fairly rapidly. I'm not going to hit every verse. You have the phrase latter days in Deuteronomy 4.30, Deuteronomy 31.29, Jeremiah 30.24, 48.47, Daniel 2.28, and 10.14. Then you have the term last days in Isaiah 2.2, Jeremiah 23.20, Jeremiah 49:39, Ezekiel 38:16, Hosea 3:5, Micah 4:1 and Acts 2:17. Then you have the phrase last day. John 6:39 to 40, 44 and 54, uh, John 11:24 and 12:48. Now that's up there so y'all can see this. That's why I put it out on the web because I don't want to spend all night on this and if you want to write down the verses, that'll give you a good shot at them on the internet. The point I'm making here by putting this up on the chart is just to give you an overview of this terminology. It's very similar phrase, latter days, last day, last day. Okay? Slide change. Latter years in Ezekiel 38, 8. Time of the end in Daniel 8, 17. End of time, Daniel 12, 4. End time, Daniel 12, 9. Notice those are both the same chapter. End of the age, Daniel 12, verse 3. So those are all related to Israel. So in, what we're going to see here is that in, in, in the Israel's thought and in the terminology related to Israel, all of these terms relate to the end of the Jewish age and what they're going to go through in terms of judgments and in terms of various disturbances that give birth to the Messianic age. So we have one set of terminology that is distinct to Israel. And in Jewish and Old Testament thought, the let, all of this turmoil, which we call the tribulation, takes place at the end of the present age in the, in, in the process of giving birth to the Messianic age. And you have that terminology, birth pangs or labor pains, and numerous passages related to the uh, tribulation period. So we have a different set. This will be point number three. Point number three, we must distinguish between the last days of the church age and the last days of Israel's tribulation. So we have, on the church side, we have the phrase later times in 1 Timothy 4.1. Last days in 2 Timothy 3.1, Hebrews 1.2, our passage. James 5.3, 2 Peter 3.3. 3. 
3. We have the phrase last times in 1 Peter 1.20. We have the phrase last time singular, 1 Peter 1.5 and Jude 18. And then we have the phrase last hour in 1 John 2.18. Now, all of these phrases refer to the entire church age. So you'll have folks who come up and they'll say, are we in the end times? And the question needs to be, whose end times? Whose last days? Whose latter times? Okay, so point one was in rabbinical thought there was a present age and then the next age, which was a messianic age. Second point, there's a number of biblical expressions that refer to the end times, latter years, last times, time of the end, end times, latter days, last days, last times. Third point, we have to distinguish between the last days of the church age and the last days of Israel. Crucial to make that distinction. Fourth point, there are no necessary signs. There are no necessary signs for the end of the church age. See, these terms refer to the entirety of the church age. If you live in the church age, you live in the last days. Hebrews 1, 2, we, God has now spoken in these last days. Okay, but those are the last days of the church. So the entire church age period is referred to as the last days. That's point number So point number four, there are no necessary signs for the end of the church age, only trends toward apostasy. That's 1 Timothy 4, 1. Spells out those trends. So point five, in the New Testament last days, last times, Last time, last hour, refer to the entirety of the church age. Point number five, these terms refer to the entirety of the church age. If you were in the second century, you were in the last times. If you're in the 20th century, you're in the last times. Point number six, thus... This refers to, biblically, the last period before the coming of the Messianic age. This refers to the last period in God's timetable before the coming of the Messianic age or the Millennial Kingdom. Now remember, just as an asterisk note here, the tribulation is the end of the Israel dispensation. So, you know, that's just kind of a footnote for Israel. We're the last main dispensation before the coming of the Millennial Kingdom. The tribulations referred to as the birth pangs for that. Okay, point seven. In Jewish thought, the present age would end with a series of judgments terminating the present age and inaugurating the Messianic age. Let me rephrase that. In Jewish thought, the their last days would end with a series of judgments. In the Jewish thought, their last days would end with a series of judgments terminating the present age and inaugurating the the Messianic age. For example, Deuteronomy 4, verse 30 states, When you are in distress, that is the tribulation, and that word distress that's used often in the Old Testament always refers to the to the tribulation period. 
when it's used in relation to this end-time turmoil of Israel. When you're in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice. See, that's that final uh, period at the end of the tribulation when Israel finally accepts the Lord as Savior, calls upon the name of the Lord, uh, Matthew chapter 23, the last verse, and where Jesus said, I won't come again until... Uh, Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This tells us, point eight, that we are currently living in the last days. We're in the church age. But we are not in the last days of the Jewish age. Because that's the tribulation. Let me say that again. We're in the last days of the church age. The last days of the church age began at the ascension of Christ. At, the, at Pentecost, when the church age began. The, the church age is the last days of the church age. So we are in the last days. Paul was in the last days. John was in the last days. Luther, Calvin, John Darby. We've all been in the last days of the church age. Because this is the last major dispensation before the millennial kingdom. But we're not in the last days of the Jewish age. Because that's the tribulation. Okay? So we are in the last days of the church, but we're not in the last days of the tribulation. Now, last time we got into a discussion of the next verse, key phrase, that the, uh, referencing his son with the relative clause, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Now, this is a crucial crucial topic to understanding all of Hebrews. In fact, understand Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is telling us what Jesus Christ is doing in his in the ascension and session of Christ and why that's important for the church age believer today in terms of Jesus Christ's current ministry seated not ruling or reigning, seated at the right hand of God the Father interceding for the church and preparing us to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. Now, I'm going to tell you why I'm emphasizing that. Because one of the weird things that has happened in recent years is there came out of Dallas Seminary and some other Dallas Seminary uh, uh, graduates a new kind of dispensationalism that came to be known as progressive dispensationalism. And the reason they call it progressive is this. It's real simple. I mean, it's a complex thing, but we're going to make it real simple. That we believe, you and I, we believe that Jesus Christ came at the first advent to establish the kingdom. He offered it. It was rejected and postponed. Period. Over and out, it's postponed. Nothing. We're in no form of the kingdom. Progressive dispensationalism teaches that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom and is gradually coming in down through the church age until it's fully here at the end of the church age. So it's a progressive realization of the kingdom until he comes at the second coming. They won't reject the pre-trib rapture, but it's pretty much rendered inconsequential. A number of other problems. But one of the things that they do is that they say that Jesus is now, because he inaugurated the kingdom, he is now sitting at the right hand of God on David's throne. Of course, there's all kinds of problems with that, but one of them is, if Jesus is sitting on David's throne, ruling and reigning now, then it destroys 
the significance of Jesus Christ's current session and intercessory ministry as a high priest and what he's doing for the church. And see, these things, little bitty things that happen today, just don't always communicate to people who, you know, who don't spend hours and hours and hours studying theology. But they're devastating in their long-term impact on how you understand the Christian life. Because the Christian life and what God is doing in your life in this age and preparing each of us to rule and reign with Him in the coming kingdom is directly related to what Jesus Christ is doing seated at the right hand of God the Father and understanding the importance of this inheritance doctrine in relationship to Christ and then in relationship to us. Because there is a special provision in Romans chapter 8 for believers in the church age who become joint heirs with Christ. Now, last Thursday night... As I got into this, I had about a 25, 30, 40-minute introduction as we went through the exegesis in the first part of the verse. So I got behind schedule, and as we came to about halfway through, I had to hurry up. And sometimes I'll just jack it into high gear. You know what I'm talking about. And people are out there trying to write it down. And I've had about four people say, my pen started smoking last week. Well, I'm aware of that. Long time ago, I learned something. I don't know if it's true for you, but it's true for me. I was reading a very short book that was way over my head, and I kept trying, and I kept trying, and I kept trying. And I'd read through the first chapter and read through the second chapter, and I just didn't get it. Finally, I said, I'm just going to read it, even if I'm not sure I understand it, till I read the whole thing. And when I got to the end and I read the conclusion, I realized how the parts all fit together to reach the end Conclusion. Then I went back and I read the book with meaning. You have to do that sometimes with books. Sometimes you have to read something three or four times or listen to a tape three or four times or 30 or 40 times before you finally get the details. But what will happen sometimes when I'm up here and I've got a ten-point doctrine and it's ten minutes to the end of the hour and I'm on point five, I'll rapid-fire through those last five points so you can see where it's going. Because I try to build a point so it's, it's moving into a, uh, a conclusion. Then I'll come back the next week and we'll slow it down and we'll go through it again. Because now you've heard where we're going and we can kind of get the overview and we'll go back and put the, all the pieces of the puzzle together and see where this is going. And this is important to understand because when we get into the fifth verse of this first chapter... When there's a quotation out of Psalm 2-7, the understanding of the significance of what this writer is saying by quoting Psalm 2-7 is directly related to understanding this airship concept because Psalm 2-8 ties this together with Jesus Christ airship. So all of this is crucial because it gives each of us a totally new framework for understanding where we're going in terms of becoming an airship. Now, most of you, and myself included, were taught through, through the years that, there were, that, that airship, being an heir of God and a joint heir of Christ in Romans 8, were the same thing. And I showed you last week why they're not. 
But I'm going to start off by reminding you of where we ended up, that those are two different airships. And it's crucial to understand that because of its found, what's happening here in, uh, in Hebrews 1. Okay, let's go through our, our doctrine. Our, the relative clause begins, whom, that's referring to the Son, whom he, God the Father, has appointed heir of all things. And the word for appoint is the Greek word tithemi. It's an aorist active indicative, which just means it refers to an act in the past. It doesn't define when that act took place. Now, there are two views as to when that appointment took place. View number one says that it took place before the creation of the world, just as uh, Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, this is referring to an act related to the divine decree. The second view is that his appointment to this position as heir is related to the ascension and his being seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that is the correct understanding of this passage because this ties directly to what we're going to study in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is one of the most important psalms for Christology in the entire uh, Old Testament. And in Psalm 2, we understand that there is this point at the ascension when a decree is made related to the Lord Jesus Christ as to his heirship, and that God the Father says, I will make you the heir of all things. So there is a decree pronounced at that point that doesn't come to fulfillment until the second coming. And so God promises that he will defeat his enemies and make his enemies his footstool at the ascension, and he says, sit down and wait. And that's what's happening in the church age. And so God is doing something else, almost like an end run to get around Satan's opposition, something Satan never expected because the church age wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. So this appointment took place at the ascension. He has appointed him heir of all things, and... The word for heir is the Greek noun kleronomos, and it indicates, as I pointed out last time, possession. Possession. It's someone who's designated an heir, but since we think of inheritance in terms of somebody dying and bequeathing property or finances or something to someone else, it's a little difficult to understand that because God the Father isn't going to die and give something to the Son. The second idea of of uh, kleronomos or inheritance is the idea of possession or ownership. So let's go over the doctrine again. First point, in the Old Testament, inheritance referred to the ownership of property, especially property passed down from one generation to another, and that's protected in the Mosaic Law, so that every tribe, every clan, every family is given a certain amount of property, and they can't get rid of it even if they do have to sell it to get out of debt at the, when the sabbatical year rolled around, everything reverted to its original owner. Second point, the property that... For, this is an example of this uh, inheritance issue. The property that belonged to Zelophehad in the tribe of Manasseh went to his daughters. He didn't have a son. The Jews practiced the law of primogenitor, and since he did not have a son, uh, his his property passed on to his five daughters. So in verse uh, Numbers 36.2 we read, And they said, The Lord commanded 
my Lord Moses, to give the land as an inheritance. And there's our Hebrew word, nachalah, meaning inheritance, heritage, or possession. To give the land as a possession by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. So there was an exception to primogenitor when there were no sons. Verse 7, So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from one tribe to another, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So this presents an issue if you've got daughters. What if they marry outside the tribe? Verse 8, And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe. That's the point in verses 8 and 9, just to not go over it in detail again. The point is that if the daughters inherit, they have to marry within the tribe so that the land stays within the tribe or within the clan. It is their possession. Point number three, the words inheritance, property, possession, and ownership are virtually interchangeable. These are all synonymous. Possession, property, ownership, and inheritance are interchangeable ideas. And the thing that that I want to get across is that when it talks about us being heirs of Christ, it's talking about ownership that we have ownership rights within the kingdom. And we have co-ruling and co-reigning rights within the kingdom. This is a special privilege. Now, that automatically implies, and this is something that a lot of Christians just have trouble with because they're not taught very well, is that there's two classes of Christians in the kingdom, church-age believers in the kingdom. I'm not talking about millennial saints. Two classes of church-age believers in the kingdom. Now, I don't know why people have trouble with that. If you just go read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 on the judgment seat of Christ, you know that there are those who are going to receive uh, rewards for gold, silver, and precious stones. And then there are others who have all their works burned up. It's all wood, hay, and straw, yet they enter heaven as yet as through fire. That clearly indicates you have one class of, of believers that are rewarded for the time they spent walking by means of the Spirit, and then there's another class that loses it all. They don't have anything, but they are still saved. So there's clearly a distinction. Well, you had a a similar type of distinction related to inheritance in the Old Testament. You had Jews who had a possession in the land, but just because you lived in the land didn't mean you possessed the land. Levites had no possession of the land. That's why one of the tithes, one of those 10% offerings every year, went to support the Levites, specifically stated in the text because they had no inheritance in the land. So you have people who are in the land, enjoying all the blessings of the land, having certain amount of, of responsibilities in the land, but they're not owners of the land. You had others who are legal aliens. You know, I'm using such a modern issue today. I just keep wanting to... What part of illegal don't you understand? I just don't understand this. This illegal immigration. It's illegal. But people don't understand the meaning of language anymore. So you had certain categories of people who lived in the land. You had sojourners and strangers, and these are 
legal aliens, legal immigrants who have come into the land. They tell us now that you can't use the word alien when you translate the Bible because young people think that you're talking about E.T. These were non-Jews. These were Gentiles who lived in the land, who enjoyed all the blessings of the land, privileges of the land, but they couldn't own the land. And so the passages are Exodus 12, 48, and 49. Numbers 18, 20, and 24, and Hebrews 11:3, which refers to the final part, point there. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in the land, but they never owned the land. So that sets a system where you have people living in the land, but not owning the land. The same way you're going to have believers who live in the kingdom, but they don't have ownership rights in the kingdom. Now we'll skip through the verses. Gave the references already. Point five. Even in the millennial kingdom, not all who dwell there will possess it. Even in the millennial kingdom, not all church-age believers, okay, resurrection bodies, rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, or lost rewards, not all who dwell there will possess it. Those who lose rewards will not possess the kingdom. They will live in the millennial kingdom, but they won't possess it. Now, there's a pernicious error floating around now as related to this doctrine that has been found its way into print. And this is it's like a Christian purgatory. And in this particular view, and it's been around for centuries, in fact, a man who was in my church a number of years ago, wrote a, a very well-researched book on this. Unfortunately, he takes the wrong position, but I think it's, I wrote an endorsement of the book. I regret it. But I wrote an endorsement for the book because I think that if you're going to study this issue, you have to study what this man researched, and that this is a long-standing position in the Protestant church, but it's wrong. And that is that the, the believers who lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ are excluded from the kingdom and they're put into some sort of Christian purgatory. And this is just a false idea. I had never heard of it before, but this guy generated, you know, a whole three or four hundred page book of historical documentation of various uh, pastors and theologians who had held this position that were well respected in many other areas. So I was, I learned a lot from that. I also learned that, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. Every heresy makes its way around again. So there, but the view in the scripture is that you can be in the land, but not own or possess it. So there will be those in the millennial kingdom who dwell there but will not possess it. First uh, Corinthians 15.50 is one of these verses. I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Okay, point number six. Inheritance was given positionally or potentially on the basis of grace. But the realization and enjoyment of that inheritance was a reward for obedience. In other words, God the Father gave you contingent blessings and rewards, both for time and for eternity, at the instant that you were saved. But if you fail to walk by means of the Spirit and grow spiritually, those rewards and privileges will not be distributed to you at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? The point is that inheritance is given positionally 
to every believer or potentially. And it's up to you and your volition as to what you're going to do in terms of spiritual growth and application of doctrine to realize and enjoy that inheritance. So the realization and enjoyment of the inheritance is a reward for obedience and spiritual growth. That's not just obedience apart from the filling of the Spirit. That is obedience filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. A couple of verses, Joshua 14, 8 and 9. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. The point in these two verses is that in the Old Testament analogy, God gave the land to the Exodus generation positionally. It was theirs potentially, but because they failed to obey him at Kadesh Barnea, that generation could not enter the land and realize their rewards. Same thing can happen to believers today. Point seven, therefore, the possession of the land was conditioned on obedience. Possession or inheritance of the land was conditioned on obedience. Inheritance is merited. Therefore, as a possession, that land could be lost. And this is what's seen in the case of Zelophehad's daughters, if they had married outside of the tribe. A couple of passages, Genesis 17:14. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He wouldn't have a possession. He would forfeit his inheritance. Numbers 14:24. This is a positive situation with Caleb, but my servant Caleb, remember Caleb and Joshua, were two of the twelve spies that spied out the land in, in uh, Numbers 13 at Kadesh Barnea. They were the only two who understood that their marching orders were to go on a long-range reconnaissance patrol to analyze the enemy's uh, fortifications and to come back so they could make an accurate plan of attack. It wasn't to see if they could conquer them, but to understand how they could do it. God had already said they were going to do it. Everybody else thought God wanted them to go there to see if they could do it. See, if you don't interpret the word correctly, you're going to end up forfeiting rewards. Point number eight. The entire Exodus generation had become God's firstborn son. See, the point that I'm making throughout this, if we understand inheritance as it's illustrated for us in the Exodus event and in the wilderness wanderings and in the inheritance of the tribes in Joshua, that is the basis for understanding what will happen in the kingdom. The ent- point number eight, the entire Exodus generation had become God's firstborn son, according to Exodus 4:22 to 23. Yet that entire generation, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, forfeited the inheritance due the firstborn. In Israel, every son receives an inheritance. Every son. But the firstborn gets a double inheritance. So Israel, that the Exodus generation, would have received that double blessing if they had obeyed God. 
But because they disobeyed God, they forfeited the blessed, the inheritance of the firstborn, and they didn't enter the land. They didn't lose their salvation, but they lost the enjoyment of their inheritance, as did Moses, because he's not allowed to enter the land. Okay, point number nine. Though not everyone has a possession in the land in the Old Testament, they all have God as their possession. They all have God as their inheritance and their possession, even though they may not have ownership in the land. This is seen in Psalm 73:26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 119.57, the Lord is my portion, I promise to keep thy words. In Psalm 142.5, I cried out to thee, O Lord, I said, thou art my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. What this tells us is that there are two categories of inheritance. Now get this straight. There's the inheritance for the firstborn and the inheritance for every son. You have an inheritance for everyone, which is the Lord, and you have ownership, special privileges in the land. So from the Old Testament, you get this, this double tier of inheritance, a special privilege for those who trusted the Lord and carried out his commands, and then you have a lower level of inheritance that goes for everybody that is not tied to obedience. Now, we take that and we apply that to the church age, and we see the same thing. For the church age, Christ has given ownership of all things. That's what is happened, happens in Hebrews 1-2. He's appointed heir of all things. And the believer can share in that ownership as a joint heir of Christ only if we mature as believers. That joint heirship is conditioned or dependent upon something. And this is what we see in Romans 8.17. The problem is, Romans 8.17, as I pointed out last time, has been mispunctuated throughout the generations. And if we look at how it's normally punctuated, it reads, If children, then heirs. So if you're a child of God, which is being a believer, then you're an heir. And then you have the next clause set off appositionally as if both terms relate to children. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But you see, there's this conditional clause after it. It says, if indeed we suffer with him. I thought all I had to do to be saved was to trust Christ as Savior. Now I've got to trust Christ and suffer with him? What do you mean by that? How much do I have to suffer? Does this mean I can self-flagellate? What, what do you mean here? I go sit on a pillar out in the wilderness for seven years like Simon Stylides? What do you do? It's a missed punctuation. And then we had our little game up here where I put the phrase, woman without her man is nothing. And we had to punctuate it. And you can do one of two things. You can say, woman without her man is nothing. Or if you just take out one comma, it says, woman without, woman without her man is nothing. Now, one phrase says that man is nothing, or that, um, that man is nothing, and the other, phrase, well, the other way of punctuation says that woman is nothing. And it all depends on where you put a comma. And there's no commas in the original Greek. So it's crucial. If you then look at Romans 8:17 and repunctuate it, we read, If children, then heirs of God, comma. 
That's one category of heirship that is true for every single believer. Every believer will have a certain inheritance. We're all going to have resurrection bodies. We're all going to participate in the rapture. There's no partial rapture. We'll all participate in the rapture. There'll be no more sorrow, no more tear, no more pain. The old things have all passed away. That's going to be true for every single believer. Every believer is going to have a perfect happiness. But there are going to be distinctions among believers as a result of what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. Some believers are going to have an inheritance. Other believers are going to benefit that inheritance. And that's the purpose of this condition clause. If children, then heirs of God. That's what comes with being a child of God. But secondly, there's another category. You're a joint heir with Christ, and you will co-rule and reign with Christ if we suffer with Him. If we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, Tie this in with what we studied Sunday night in Revelation where we talked about the role of suffering, that in Hebrews uh, 2, I think it's in Hebrews 2.10, it talks about the fact that Christ learned by the things he suffered. Jesus Christ, perfect humanity, no sin nature, still had to learn. He had to go through that learning process by being tested. And through that testing, he had to learn to obey God fully. He never disobeyed God. He never sinned. He advanced to spiritual maturity through testing. So that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about some sort of uh, suffering related to what happened before Jesus went to the cross. We're not talking about going through some sort of situation where you're being persecuted or, or, you know, Christians get these ideas, well, I've got to go do something so I'll suffer for Jesus. Let me tell you, if you're a believer and you're uh, walking by means of the Spirit in this world in the angelic conflict, you're going to come under... Uh, various categories of suffering that God designs for your spiritual growth to test the doctrine in your soul, James 1, 2 through 4. And the result of this is that we co-rule and co-reign with Christ and co-glorify Him. Now, all that is background to simply understanding Christ's heirship. See, Christ becomes a... Uh, is appointed an heir. Now we've understood that heirship or inheritance means possession. Now, three basic points. I don't have slides on these. Three basic points on Christ's heirship. First point, heirship is rooted in the essence of his sonship. It's rooted in his sonship. That very title, that's why he is appointed heir. Matthew 21:33, we have the parable of the man who planted a vineyard. And in there, we have the heir coming on the scene, and uh, he has to deal with the administration of the vineyard, and the servants uh, attack him. Now, was he the son before he became the heir? Or was he already the heir because he was the son? He was already the heir because he was the son. He didn't. Ha- it wasn't tied to what he, uh, what he did. Uh, Galatians 4.1, Now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. So inheritance was tied up with his sonship. But he is not appointed a son. This is where you get into that confusion. Did it happen before the creation of the world or after? He's not appointed heir. He is the heir, but he's not appointed or 
the, the air in terms of a formal ceremony until the ascension. Psalm 8.5 tells us that man is placed under the authority of a man. This is why it has to happen at the ascension. This is when Jesus Christ in his humanity ascends and seats at the right hand of the Father. And it is at that point that God says, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And in that process, he is going to bring all of creation under the authority of Jesus Christ, which is then realized at the second coming, so that a man finally fulfills his destiny and rules the creation. You see, it, it all comes together. Colossians 1.20 says that Christ reconciled all things to God. Not just you and me, all things. Why all things? Because everything was separated from God as a result of Adam's sin. When Adam sinned, it it didn't just separate man spiritually from God, that was the penalty for sin, but it reverberated through all of creation. So that before the fall, you didn't have rain, you didn't have hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, you didn't have disease, you didn't have all of these other things, you didn't have antagonism in the animal kingdom. When the lion looked at the lamb, he said, let's go cuddle. And when he, uh, the lion would eat straw. And, uh, and see, when you look in Isaiah 65, this is a condition at the end of the, in the millennial kingdom once again. The lion will eat straw. The lion and the lamb will lie down uh, with each other. When the wolf looks at the lamb, he doesn't see lamb chops. When the uh, child plays outside, he can stick his hand in a cobra's den. All of that is true once again in the millennial kingdom. That is because Jesus Christ is restoring, reconciling all things. And reconciliation has to do with bringing things back in line with the standard. And that standard got violated and broken when Adam ate the fruit. So all of this connects. It's just like pulling a bunch of different threads together and seeing how the the plan of God is complex, but it's simple. And the bottom line is Jesus is the appointed heir at the time of the ascension. And all of this is building to a point where he becomes the ruler of all things that he has reconciled at the cross in order to fulfill man's originally intended destiny. That's the second point flowing out of Psalm 8.5. And then Hebrews 2.5, we learn that he will put, uh, he's put everything uh, under the angels at now, but the Son will ultimately be in charge of even the angels, and man will rule over the angels. And in Hebrews 11.9, we understand that, that even Abraham understood that. He didn't write about it. We couldn't get it out of Genesis, but Hebrews tells us that he understood it. Now, we have just a couple of minutes before we're left before we're done, and so I'm not going to get into the next phrase, which is loaded with meaning, through whom also he made the ages. So that is a whole other study because that brings us into an understanding of dispensations. And just to close with a little anecdote, I was talking with Tommy today, 
and he's had a great opportunity to teach at Criswell uh, University and Seminary up there in Dallas. That was a school that started out of First Baptist Dallas, uh, named a- after uh, W.A. Criswell, who was the uh, pastor there for some 55 years. And the school used to be pretty solid, and it used to be traditional dispensationalist. But Tommy taught all week on, on a, and had a couple of classes uh, joined together on prophecy studies, and Tommy said that most of their professors, like many other places, have bought into progressive dispensationalism. And uh, so Tommy was presenting a solid case for traditional dispensationalism, and none of these students had ever heard anybody present a case for traditional dispensational theology. And they had never heard that. And, of course, Tommy likes to stir the pot a little bit, so he said... Progressive dispensationalism basically flows out of a postmodern mindset. And, of course, he had five or six people who just freaked out and said, you know, we've got professors here who are conservative fundamentalists. How can you say they're postmodern? And the point is that, in, in, that what's happened in the whole hermeneutic interpretation scheme, that's what, what's happened today is everything's gone down to hermeneutics. Have you noticed that? Whether you're talking about the Supreme Court, the judicial activism, uh, what's happening with Terry Schiavo, all of these things, it boils down to how do you interpret something. And, and interpretation has become the big battleground today, is how do you interpret what people mean? And what's happened in the last 20 years, and this basically came out of a couple of guys I had to study under Dallas Seminary back in the, back in the late 80s, was the development of an interpret, interpretation system called complementary hermeneutics. Now, I'm not going to twist your minds with all of that, but the bottom line on it is that, that they started using this terminology that uh, the pre-understanding of the, of, the, of the person. In other words, we, we all know that we all have a bias when we come to the text. If you're a Catholic and you get saved, you come to the Bible, you start reading it, you read it in terms of your Catholic framework. But all of a sudden, if you're uh, under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit and applying literal grammatical hermeneutics, it's going to change, and you're going to change your, your, your previous biases. But what's happened today, and this has happened whether you're talking about law or theology, is that they're moving that background into the hermeneutic spiral so that now nobody can break out of it. The reason you're a dispensationalist is because you have a dispensational pre-understanding. The reason you're a covenant is because you have a covenant pre-understanding. The reason you're liberal is because you have a liberal pre-understanding. What does that mean? There's no objective truth that can change your previous understanding of anything, whether it's the law or politics or whatever. This is postmodernism. Ultimately, you can't ever understand reality as it is, and therefore there's no absolutes in law, there's no absolutes in theology, there's no absolutes in the study of the Bible, because everything is going to be subjectivized by your little pre-understanding. Therefore, you can't change. I mean, it incorporates almost a fatalism. So after Tommy got it through explaining that to the students, they were... uh, they, they understood what it was and gave a lot of people a lot of cause to think. But nobody is out there today teaching consistent literal hermeneutics and consistent traditional dispensationalism anymore. That's why this is so important. And it's important to understand because it impacts how you view Israel. And we have to remember, as good Texans, that Israel's the other Lone Star State. 
Just think about their flag. And that's why when we have our prophecy conference next week, we're focusing on Israel, past, present, and future. Now, we couldn't do everything right in order because of their schedule, but it's all going to be uh, within the context of that conference. And I encourage you to invite friends, invite people uh, to come and hear this because it's crucial to understand, uh, to get a greater perspective on what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in terms of biblical prophecy, in order to understand the things that we're going to teach during that conference. And uh, Tommy has some great stuff on the new anti-Semitism. And if you don't think that America's anti-Semitic or, you, or, or that uh, what's going on over in Europe, then your head's in the, buried in the sand. So you need to come and hear this, and it crops up in the most subtle ways. And then Randy's going to talk about various other things, including the temple, uh, past, present, and future. And Randy wrote, wrote a book called The Coming Last Day's Temple that's about 750 pages long. And Dr. Walbert, I think almost tongue-in-cheek, said that nobody in all of history has ever written or probably will ever write a book, a study on the temple as detailed as this one. And it is a, it's a magnificent book. But anyway, that, uh, uh, be ready for next uh, next week on Thursday night, 7.30, and we'll start at 7.30 sharp, and uh, both Thursday and Friday night, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to uh, be challenged by these things, to come to a greater understanding of our role and our position in relation to uh, our Lord's inheritance and his ruling and reigning responsibility as the greater son of David and as the Uh, king of Israel and the king over the world in the millennial kingdom, and that we will be ruling and reigning with him as kings and priests. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.